Hello, smart friends, and welcome to day three of our Smart Cities Week podcast special. In this episode of the Smart City podcast, I have a great chat with Jeff Hayden. Jeff is an associate at data sharing company, Tech, and co-founder of the IoT Alliance in Australia. Jeff shares his background in the telecommunications industry and how that sparked his interest in the smart city space. He is passionate about helping all levels of government to really understand the importance of data and data sharing in the digital economy and how we all need to be on the same page with protecting and sharing appropriate, sometimes quite sensitive data. We also discuss the importance of councils and state governments taking stock of what's happening first internally in order to make smart decisions about what smart applications are needed and the interesting evolution in the thinking going on about what makes a livable city or community. Jeff shares his thoughts on the patchiness of Australia's adoption of smart concepts and explains how the IoT Alliance came to be. We also discuss why collaboration across industries and disciplines is critical for us to actually be solving the problems we have today with or without IoT. As always, I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. It's the Smart City Podcast, whoa, with smart city experts, here we go. Connecting smart technology, both big and small. Smart cities are making life better for all. Big data, emerging trends, self-driving cars and more. The Smart City Podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Jeff. How are you? Hi, Zoe. It's uh, great to be here. Excellent. Let's jump straight in. And can you tell us about your background and what you're passionate about? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, look, I'm I'm old. I'm like uh, really old. So I've been working in the telecommunications industry for 45 years or something like that, scarily. Um, but my, my interests and my current activity are all around um, smart city work uh, with a, a little company uh, branded Creator Tech. We do a lot of work with data sharing policy for local government and I've been working in data sharing and privacy and, and data of all kinds for, for a number of years now. I also uh, am one of the co-founders of the IoT Alliance, the Internet of Things Alliance in Australia, which we set up about three years ago. And that's um, growing like crazy and has been since the day we formed it. And that has a, a very um, relevant role to play in the whole smart city world. And I do a number of other number of other things that um, with startups and all sorts of goodies. So that's me. Yeah, wow. So tell us what you're passionate about. Oh, well, my mission uh, right now is to try and get all of the local governments in Australia and all the state and federal governments, for that matter, to uh, really understand the importance of data and data sharing in a digital economy and really realising and trying to help them understand that innovation is really only enabled through the sharing of data and information. And that means building ecosystems with partners from unusual places sometimes and trying desperately to get everybody to be on the same page with the, the notion of how you protect and share appropriately, sometimes quite sensitive data for the good of both innovation as well as um, protecting everybody's rights at the same time. Mm, yeah, cool. So tell us what kind of sparked your interest in the smart city space. Well, it, it actually, uh, you know, I have a very, very long history in the telecommunications sector and it became pretty clear, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago that more and more and more sensors and uh, were getting connected to the telecommunications networks. And that was sort of creating this whole new Internet of Things growth phase in, in the world of the Internet. And it's really the third phase. You know, the first phase was all about 
trying to just connect people to you know to the web and, and get access to information. Then it sort of became all of, you know, that was like a decade's worth, and there was a little decade's worth of, of thinking about um, social implications and social media, Facebook, Twitter, all those sorts of things emerged. And then now we're deeply into the third phase of, of, of real pervasiveness of the of the internet, where it's not just people and computers being connected; it's sensors that are getting lower and lower cost. And what makes that kind of interesting, from my telecommunications background point of view, is that the telecommunications piece of that puzzle becomes a very, very low cost, very uninteresting part of the whole picture. And the real excitement is actually around all the new applications and services that these sensors and networks enable. So I've really shifted my focus from being concerned with, if you like, the the pipes and the infrastructure that sit below the internet to uh, the the business models and the applications, and, and it's all digital information. So suddenly the, the, the world of digital information is starting to in, impinge itself on every single industry sector and in every single business. And that, that what, that's what makes it so so game-changing and so dramatic. Mm. So basically, like the foundation is already there and now we're looking at the really cool innovative stuff um, and, you know, the different way people are using the internet rather than worrying about how um, you know, we're going to connect the next town or the next um, house. That yeah. kind of foundational piece is there. Yeah, what's really interesting is that, you know, there's this relentless change and lowering of costs and increase in technology um, for sensors, for computing. You know, we, we can kind of easily predict the future of computing. We can easily predict the, the, the cost of memory and the cost of processing and all of those things. But what it translates into is if you want to sense something, you know, like measure movement of something or measure the temperature of something or measure the humidity of something or, you know, it doesn't strain, you know, wind, all manner of things, the sensing to do that is getting cheaper and cheaper. So, you know, 25 years ago when people were sensing components of jet engines, that made sense because jet engines cost a lot of money and so did the sensors. Whereas today, a sensor that did something as complicated as that back then might be only, a, you know, a few dollars. So you can sense something. It's worth only a few tens of dollars. And we also can see that over time, those sensors will get even cheaper. And so we'll be sensing things that are only worth a few cents. Um, you know, I can, I can foresee us having sensors embedded in paper if we ever still need paper. <laughs> um, and we can sense and measure things in the lowest cost items. You know, um, you know, a glass of water will have a sensor in it and it'll be contributing information about our calorie intake and our health and our you know, our hydration and all sorts of things. And these things just get more and more and more pervasive and get more and more and more interesting as you think, as you think about that future. Mm, no, that's really interesting. Um, I hadn't really thought that kind of deeply into it, I suppose. But, yeah, the lower the cost, the, the lower the cost of the actual device, the lower the cost of the things that we're interested in sensing, I suppose. Yeah, well, and the same is true of, of the telecommunications network and the same is true of all of the, Computing resource used to analyze all this data. You know, so all of these aspects of it are going, getting lower and lower and more and more cost effective to do more and more things. And so we're moving now from high cost sensing to very low cost sensing. And that, that uh, path just continues. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, let's go on to this next question. Um, cause I'm sure we'll talk some more about that, um, when we get into it. But what is a smart city to you? <laughs> it's a, it's the million dollar question. In fact, uh, I was discussing in a in an Internet of Things a working group this morning 
this very thing. And we decided in our meeting that uh, if you had 100 people and you asked them what that, the answer to that was, you'd get more than 100 answers. So we, we already have um, <laughs> quite a dilemma on our hands. But fundamentally, uh, we see, um, and in fact, I've, I've developed a little model um, with, with my colleagues that, um, that helps to illustrate this. We see a, a sort of a four-phase evolution of smart cities. And the first phase um, is what's going on in the markets around the world now, and that is really quite simple uh, improvements in traditional businesses. You know, if, uh, if you take a couple of simple examples, which a lot of local governments are deploying right now, things like upgrading the uh, city lighting to LED lighting, which gives you suddenly a much, much lower cost of electricity, but it also gives you the ability to control and monitor those LED lights much more effectively than the old designs. So that's a team of lighting people improving lighting with a smarter solution. And that doesn't sound very exciting. And it isn't, but it's a first step. And in parallel with that, the people who manage waste are putting sensors on bins to, to detect when bins are getting full and to help optimize and improve performance of waste management. That's another siloed activity, and we call those sorts of siloed activities phase one. The really interesting things start to emerge after that, and that is when you get to what we call phase two, which is when data from something like that LED lighting example and the waste management uh, start to be brought together so that you can innovate with new ideas that use both sets of data from completely different parts of the business. And that continues to evolve until all of the traditional silos within a business, which have all made some steps down this digital path are actually realising that sharing right across the board is really fundamental to the future of their business, and they all start doing it. And that's what we call phase three. And then finally, where a lot of the marketing is today, but none of the reality, is phase four, when the business is actually being uh, guided very precisely by the use of all the data coming from all the parts of the business. So when we talk about a smart city, we actually are talking about a journey, and I know it's a bit of a metaphor and a bit of a, an overused term, but the the idea that you you can get to that phase four future without going through the previous phases is just crazy. The the point is that councils and governments have got to learn how to use data and they've got to learn how to use it starting with baby steps. And those baby steps are the ones that are happening right now. And only the first steps towards phase two are emerging. So the, the, the newer and more interesting ideas that make a city smart are only just starting to emerge in Australia, and, and in some places they are a little bit more mature, but not much. I mean, we're, we're not dreadfully behind. Mm. Yeah, no, you speak in my language. I think that it's really important to, particularly in the local governments and, and councils and also state governments, um, actually taking a, a stock take of what's happening internally first so then it can actually enable some of these other, you know, smarter solutions once we move into that. It's all well and good to have smart lighting, smart parking, and those solo, you know, siloed um, instances. But when you can kind of merge them together and then use that data, um, cross pollinate that data to make decisions, that's when the really exciting stuff happens. And there are examples, but they're they're only quite new and, and early. So when a when a council, uh, you know, CEO asks me, what's the What's the killer application for smart cities or what's the what's the cool thing I really should do straight away? The answer is start. <laughs> but, it, you know, they, what they're asked, what they're hoping to hear is, oh, we want you we want you to take the data from this and this and this and this and do this clever thing that, that this other council has already done and, and save lots of money or made lots of money. 
And really, it's too soon to, to declare those winners. There's lots of experimenting going on. There's lots of siloed projects delivering great results, but they're all doing old things in new ways. What we've got to get to is the new things in new ways, which we haven't really got to yet. Mm, cool. So I think you've kind of answered this next question already, but why do you think that this smart city concept is so important? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we kind of got there already a little bit, but I, I think um, the, the core of this is cities, and, and maybe we shouldn't even use the term cities, but communities that people live in need to be as livable as we can make them. And we have a massive challenge in many of the Australian cities, uh, and so does the world, actually. It's not limited to here. But most of the growth and development in our cities over the last 100 years have happened through the age of the car. And we've just about uh, become so dependent on it. And the way we've designed suburbs to be nothing more than dormitories with cars, that people aren't walking to to a, a local cafe or, or a restaurant or to each other's places because they're just too far away. Um, we're now very, very dependent on, on cars. And that doesn't make for a livable city. So there's now lots of work going on to try and uh, improve the way a city is laid out and built so that we can walk to various things and we don't have to get in the car every time we want to get a loaf of bread. And, you know, there, there's a really uh, interesting evolution of thinking going on around what makes a livable city. And communities that actually can walk and talk to each other are considered pretty critical parts of that for both business and pleasure and social behavior. So. You know, we've seen a bit of a shift in places like Sydney where now a lot of people want to live right in the heart of the city and success is considered buying an apartment in the city, not buying a house in the suburbs, and it's partly because of that reason. Mm. Yeah, and I like your term. Uh, I like changing the term from city to community. I'm very passionate about that now um, because I think as soon as you say city, you you know, you polarise the population and people that aren't living in the city don't you know, can't engage or don't feel like they can engage. But I think we talk about the term city as kind of being not just, you know, the traditional sense of the term, but, you know, the places that we live, um, you know, the communities that we live in, the regional areas and the rural areas. But, yes, I'm finding that less and less acceptable now. So I'm definitely trying to move, shift that language to smart community so then we can have the conversation across the whole board. Yeah, and, and really is important. In fact, interestingly, many, many local communities outside of the core city areas are better equipped to do smart things because the footprint of the council is much, much bigger and it, it does encompass the entire community. You know, when you look inside a city like Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane or, or other major cities, there's just so many local councils that are contained within the city that it's really hard to get them all to be on the same page at the same time to do something that actually is to the benefit of the entire city. They each are trying to do things, but once again, they're in their own silos, uh, dealing with their own issues within their own little community, and that little community is not big enough to um, uh, to really affect these sorts of significant evolutionary changes that we're describing. Mm, yeah. No, I, I agree. And I think even the term smart region, so we can start thinking more holistically. Cause again, even if we have like silent approaches within streams, but then we, if we have silent approaches, uh, you know, um, that don't cross borders, that's also going to be a problem when we're moving between, um, you know, cities for work, you know, yeah. or pleasure. Um, we want to have a kind of simple. Yeah. yeah. Let me give you a really simple example. It, a, a lot of talk now and a lot of work going on to try and improve what's called mobility as a service. In other words, offering 
consumers an application or an ability to um, mix and match all the various communication, uh, sorry, all, all of the various um, mobility choices, you know, cars, buses, trains, push bikes, rental cars, rental bikes, walking, you know, all of those aspects are all open to us in various ways. And based on our interests in wellness and our weather conditions and, you know, and these things vary day to day, how do we use all of those tools to deliver our results each day? And when you think about how that sort of mobility as a service model would work, most people don't live and work in the same council footprint. So you can't even develop a service that makes much sense if you're working on it within one council. You need to sort of group councils together and say, hey, we're going to try and develop a service that um, helps to manage my day, which goes from my home to my, you know, to my gym, to my doctor surgery, to the office, to out for lunch somewhere, back to the office. You know, every one of these steps can be a journey provided by a different component of, of service. And, and it's not much fun if you've got uh, a rail app and a bus app and a bike app and a Uber app and the list goes on and on and you've got to cycle through them all to decide what's optimum. You can actually imagine, and there are people working on solutions now that allow you to completely work through all of that. You put in some preferences about what suits you and the weather is taken into account and your health status and all that stuff. And suddenly you get a choice of, well, it really would be smart if you walked to this bus stop, caught that bus to that meeting, and then caught this train to that one and walked from this bit to that bit. And, you know, that's really mobility as a service. And that will never work if we only do it one local government area at a time. Mm. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And I actually, um, that smart mobility concept, I'm very passionate about. And I'm heading overseas next year on a Churchill Fellowship to look at just that. So let's hope that I can get some good insights. Yeah. Yeah, and and that also brings into play all of that challenge around parking and around um, traffic congestion and all of the other stuff that slows smartness down. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, let's talk about, I think, we again, we've already kind of talked about this, but how do you think that Australia is kind of embracing this smart community, smart region concept? Yeah, it's, it's actually very patchy. Um, one of the reasons we formed the IoT Alliance in the first place was because we felt that Australia was culturally tending to want to be an early adopter, but not a leader. It wanted to be what we'd call a fast follower. And in a digital world, in my humble opinion, being a fast follower means coming second. And in digital, that means coming last. Um, you know, if you invent Facebook and then make it global, you can't say, gee, that's a good idea. I'll do that in Australia. It's too late. Somebody did it. You've got to do something different and you've got to do it first. And the digital economy means that, you know, you get one shot at something and if you're the first to market and it gets big, then you're it. Uh, you can't just go replicate that in another place because the place is not relevant. It's global. Um, so we, we were really worried that our Australian culture of enjoying watching the world and then deciding what to take as the best examples from around the world was actually a really bad idea in the digital world. So we decided we'd try and get things uh, moving a little and push a bit harder and get people to learn by doing rather than learn by watching everybody else in the world uh, so we could develop capabilities that could be exported and grow jobs here and do the things that we think are pretty valuable to the Australian landscape. We've got cultural challenge because we have a natural tendency to want to just pick the best from the world and we've got a long history of doing that very well, but that's not good enough in a digital world. Um, not if you want to be an exporter of solutions, design things that get, get sold overseas and be a, a participant 
I mean, it's one thing to just take a good idea and use it. Fine, you can do that. But that's creating jobs somewhere else. You know, grow Facebook, all those jobs aren't in Australia, if you know what I mean. You know, we're, we're trying to work out ways of improving our uh, creativity in Australia that we can export and develop. And, and we, you know, we do have examples, but, but there's not enough. You know, there's, there's plenty of action going on, but um, we're not we're not really competing globally as well as we should. Mm, yeah, I was just going to say we have a lot of um, smart people in Australia, particularly you know out in the regions um, that are doing really cool stuff. But how do we yeah make sure that we've got that connectedness so we can market it to the world? Well, when you look at something as fundamental as our national broadband network, when that idea was first being talked about, and I was there talking about it when it was happening, uh, we were in the top ten in the world in broadband connectivity. Right now, Australia ranks 66, and that's pretty sad and, and very, very hard to recover from because there are many, you know, there's 65 other countries that have got better connectivity than we've got, and that's a critical enabler for smart anything. Yeah, I um, spent a bit of time in South Korea and had this, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're up there with the fastest internet in the world. Yeah, they are, and they've been, well, they, they started very, very early, and they have the luxury of being a a very small geography with a very dense population, so they have a real advantage. But having said that, they leveraged very well and very early some very good ideas. I, I was there and I, I used to be in the telecommunications industry supplying that broadband technology into the Asian region, and they were one of the very first to invest heavily, and they did it with a lot of government support early as well. But um, that's just one example. Almost every Asian country is ahead of us now. Cool. Okay. Let's talk about some of the projects and things that you're currently working on in this space. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, lots of interesting things going on. Uh, and I've been doing a lot of work in developing data sharing policies for local government, um, which sounds very boring, but it actually is a really critical enabler because as, as we've talked about, as councils start gathering data, from all of these different siloed businesses, the, the first challenge is can they even share it within their own silos, let alone can they share it with their ecosystem of external partners and can they uh, extract value from that data effectively by, by sharing it with that ecosystem. And so uh, it's one thing to enable the technology and then we've done a lot of work in that domain as well, but the, the real challenge has been how to get councils to consistently put in place policy that help them Share and open appropriately data without without creating you know um, risk for them. And uh, so I put a lot of effort and time, my a lot of my time, a lot of my day job is putting putting that work in place. Um, but I, but there's lots of other things. Um, you know, some some local governments uh, are really starting to think about the next generation of telecommunications equipment. You know, the 5G network that's coming will change the game again for a lot of things that go on in cities and. Um, some councils are starting to explore that and, and think about how they can be early in that race. Uh, I've been doing work there. I've been really uh, quite involved in a number of um, in sensor network designs and builds around the, the regional parts of New South Wales particularly. Um, there's some really cool projects that, uh, that are starting, you know, startup communities based on the fact that there's sensor networks available and the innovators are coming up with great ways of um, of deploying sensors and gathering data from all sorts of things, anything from uh, from uh, boats in a in a harbour to uh, you know checking for uh, for mooring performance and leakage and all sorts of interesting things, um, right through to um, you know monitoring grapevines for weather conditions that might trigger the, the botrytis growth or you know the list goes on and on of, of unusual things and I, I get 
myself uh, involved in all, all manner of these sorts of things. Mm, cool. Can you tell us a little bit about the IoT Alliance, just for anyone that doesn't know? Yeah. Well, like I said, we, we started about three years ago, and um, uh, that was under the, the Creator Tech brand. Me and a colleague in Creator Tech were, were, uh, were positioning what's called the Communications Alliance, which is a body that represents the telecommunications industry. Uh, we thought that they might be very interested in this, and we proposed to them that we do a bit of a study um, of the state of play of IoT in Australia to see just where where it might be able to help. And they, they agreed that that was an important area, and they helped fund uh, a report that uh, my colleague and I developed, and um, that created a lot of recommendations and suggestions. And the, the, the board of the Comms Alliance basically said, "Well, we, we excuse me, we agree with almost all of that. So let's." Um, Let's dive in and see what we can do. And what what very quickly happened was the IoT Alliance started to uh, to grow well beyond the telecommunications industry and started to include all of the ICT players in the market who are touching IoT from one perspective or another, and many of the uh, the using of IoT type community. You know, the people in agriculture, the people in utilities, the people in councils, the people who work in um, in transport and uh, and in manufacturing and, you know, all these different industry sectors. Uh, so we, we found ourselves with um, almost 500 member companies and organisations now, many of whom are in government agencies, state and federal, and uh, as well as industry groups that represent large groups of other companies. And we've got um, pretty close now to, I think, a 1,000 participating people in the various work groups and work streams and things that we've got set up. So the way we're structured now is... We have a, a, a bunch of things that we would really describe as enablers, things like uh, platforms and cybersecurity and, and data handling and, and things of that nature. And then we have a, a, a front-facing part of the organization, which is really around industry-specific, like smart cities, like utilities, like transport and logistics, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, and we set that up in such a way that we've got a, we've got a board and we've got an executive council and we've got work groups or work streams as we call them. I think we've got 12 or 13 work streams now and uh, and I'm, I'm sort of the now the principal consultant for the whole thing and I chair the work stream on platforms and interoperability which is becoming quite a, an important piece of the puzzle. That's where I'm putting my focus at the moment um, and that also links to standardisation work as well. So we're very heavily involved with Standards Australia and that links us into the international work going on in standards as well. Mm, excellent. No, thanks for sharing that. I am um, really keen to put the links and everything in the show notes so people can click away and um, find out some more about the IoT Alliance. I've been doing a bit of um, looking at it myself and it's definitely something that is really needed and kind of setting up those, like you said, interoperability and standards and um but also just getting different people involved in the smart city conversation or smart community conversation. Yeah, and, and in fact, the, the, the really critical thing is the ecosystems you have to develop to make solutions happen. You know, one of the things that, that really hasn't happened too much before in, in the Internet world is um, now with the Internet of Things, if you've got a problem that you're trying to solve, there's a very good chance that that problem is in an industry outside of the telecommunications industry. It's, you know, a water industry problem or a sewerage problem or a you know, finance problem or goodness knows what problem. But many cases, those problems can be addressed by an Internet of Things type of solution. So what we find is a water expert needs to work with a 
an IoT expert to actually come up with the right solution. They each know enough to be dangerous, but they don't know enough to come up with the right solution unless they work together. And that's what I mean by the importance of collaboration. Solutions only come when the collaboration happens between the people who understand the capability of the technology and the people who understand the particular nuances of the problem. And uh, uh, there's tons of examples of really great successes that come from those sorts of collaborations. And uh, and we really have to get much better at creating those collaborations and, and creating that ability to solve problems. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that kind of answers um, my next question um, about integration, integrating across the different disciplines. I think it's so much about that collaboration piece and having um, the right people but different people at the table when we're making these decisions. Mm. Well, we, we really do see a great deal of that issue everywhere. You know, where organizations are structured in, an, in what we would describe as an old-fashioned way where that sort of collaboration is not necessarily even encouraged, let alone achieved. You know, if you're looking at a local council, the different siloed businesses within a local council, they're all competing for budget. So their, their adjacent um, council team is almost the enemy while they're going for budget. But what they need to be is best friends. <laughs> so um, then where, where do you fund things from when the real excitement is happening in between two silos? It, that's all very tricky for local governments to handle. So um, there's a lot of a lot of experimenting and learning by doing that has to happen to, to break down those old boundaries. Yeah, I agree. I think um, governance in the space is so important. But let's move on to this next question because I'm really keen to hear your thoughts. What are the emerging trends that people aren't talking about enough? <laughs> yeah, well, certainly the implications of 5G are significant and need to be understood, and that's tricky because that's technically very tricky. Um, the whole issue of cybersecurity is getting talked more about, but not necessarily dealt with effectively. Um, and um, the IoT Alliance is doing a great deal of work in this area, which we hope will, will make a real difference in Australia. But um, you know, the importance of how you secure and protect data and how you share data and how you recognize that sharing data is such an enabler for innovation, I think is something we haven't talked enough about at all in this country. Um, I've been terribly frustrated that We've had a, a serious run of senior politicians and particularly prime ministers who have tried to position the word innovation in their policies without ever saying anything about how to do it. And in the digital world, the most important enabler for any form of innovation is data sharing. And yet that none of them have made that link. So I think that's something we should be talking much more about, recognizing that data sharing is fundamental to our future innovation. And, you know, and, our, and just to be a quick diversion, that health record debacle going on right now with government is a classic example. We seriously as a country need to embrace that model, but they've done a really lousy job of selling to us all why it's so important. So, of course, there's plenty of reasons to be sensitive and concerned about it, but we're not hearing the balanced argument. We're only hearing the high-risk side of the argument, and we, we have to start to discussing these things in a grown-up way so that we appreciate that sharing data and fundamentally uh, managing the way we share data is critical to the future of our whole economy because every industry now is affected by digital information. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think in order to make the decisions that need to be made, you need you know digital diversity across the board because you can't have people making – you can't make the best decisions if you don't have the right people at the table. And there's no way that any one person – 
who's only had a background in, say, policy, for example, can make an informed decision about, you know, uh, cyber security, um, you know, at, at a local level or, or something like that. And I think embracing that genuine collaboration piece is the only way we're going to be able to make these good decisions moving forward. And then I guess also, yeah, that grown-up conversation piece as well about um, not just having scare stories in the media but actually what does it all mean and explaining it in a in a language that people can understand that's the only way we're going to be able to do that yeah i've been very worried that um the approach that the federal government's taken with the health records just for example is trust us we're the government well i'm not sure i know anybody who trusts the government anymore so that trick doesn't work <laughs> you have to find a more a more expansive explanation and there are some genuinely really, really important reasons why digital health records are a part of our future. And if they're not going to be clever enough to describe them to the community in a way that they can understand it, then why should they embrace it? You know, it's uh, if there's an element of mistrust, then the answer is, well, we won't do it. And if you don't give us a good enough reason to do it, then we won't. Well, I'm afraid they're not giving us a good enough reason right now. You know, even though we might know many of those reasons, it's up to the government to convince the population that... Uh, those reasons are incredibly valid and important, and they they genuinely are, but they've done a lousy job of trying to sell it. Yeah, and I think um, it comes with empowering the community to, you know, to allow them to make those decisions, if that makes sense, you know, and that they feel like they were involved. If they're just told that they need to change, then, you know, that's when people um, get defensive. But if they're actually involved in the change and can understand the importance of the change, then, you know, you're going to have a much easier time selling something to somebody that's been involved and, and co-created it um, and that, you know, you, they feel like there's trust and transparency and, you know, people know what's going to happen with that data um, and, 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 you know, making sure that privacy is paramount. Um, and, you know, that's the number one issue on, on particularly for if we're talking about um, my health record. So... I think, yeah, you, you did set right. And I think the only way we kind of do that is continue to have the grown up conversations with the community because they're not, the community's smart. They're smart already. We just need to treat them as such and empower them to be able to make these decisions with, you know, alongside the, the agencies. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a really tricky issue for me because I, I agree the community is pretty well educated around information and, but it's also incredibly lazy you know almost all of the problems that we see on uh, denial of service attacks and things are caused by people not even bothering to change default passwords and that's a really fundamentally flawed thing to do and nobody should be silly enough to do that but most of the population truly is and that's really sad but on the other hand you know health records uh, just to stick with that example we've, we've got it's an incredibly complex thing to appropriately handle protecting human rights and protecting the safety of that information and sharing it appropriately with the right agencies under the right conditions. And I don't believe there's anybody in the community who has got the patience to sit down and work through all of those issues. But what they do need is some confidence that the people who are working on it will do the right thing. And that's that's a tough thing to sell when you've got a government who people broadly don't like to trust right now. <laughs> so it is a bit of a bit of a dilemma. You know, this this it's technically very complex and there's no way you could explain how it all works to people who are not in the field. But what you can do is explain the consequences of doing it badly and the consequences of doing it well 
and ensuring and somehow illustrating just that it is being done well and it's being done well enough to solve the, the concerns that people really have. And that is hard. You know, I, I don't deny that getting that messaging right is hard and getting the solution right is hard. But we have to really make a good shot at that. And we're not doing that right now. We're not doing it well enough. We might we might even have a good solution. But until they, they tell uh, industry bodies that are trying to help how they're going about doing it and how they uh, are reducing all those risks, then it's very hard for industry to comment about whether it's a good solution or not. So it, trust us where the government isn't good enough right now. Yeah, and I definitely, yeah, it is about that transparency um, about, you know, we've made, you know, how we've made the good decisions that we've made, um, not necessarily the, you know, nth degree in the technical detail. Yeah, but I love, I love thinking about these issues because they are the way we, we institutionalize change and improvement. And, you know, if you reflect on just cars, it's really interesting because today we are living in a society that is quite ridiculously relaxed about the fact that somebody dies in a car crash every day and dozens of people are, are permanently disabled through that process. And yet there's enough good value propositions out there for, for cars that everybody accepts that balance. And um, that's evolved over 100 years. And, and if you put that proposition to the community today and said, hey, we've got this great idea, everybody can have a car, but we're going to kill somebody with one every day, the answer would be not a hope of getting that through. You know, we, that's evolved and we've accepted it. And the value proposition is, yes, there's tons of upside. Yes, there's some downside. And we all are making the judgment that that's an acceptable balance. So we need to be able to explain that balance and get people to realize that, uh, yes, there might be some very, very small risk of some data getting into the wrong hands, but the benefits are enormous. Let's talk about the benefits. Yep. Okay, cool. Well, it's been so awesome to chat with you today, Jeff. Um, I'm, I'm really glad we... I feel like we're just getting started. <laughs> uh, I know. I feel like that as well. Um, I, I, yeah, we're going to have to have another conversation um, for sure. But let's... Uh, I really just have one last question um, in this in this chat, um, which is how can people connect with you? Uh, the simplest way is through my Creatortech email address, which is just geof1fjeff at creatortech.com, which is just creator with a tech, all one word, simple. Awesome. And we'll put the links um, to, in the show notes so people will be able to connect with you. And, yeah, I look forward to our next conversation. Me too. Thanks, Zoe. Nice to talk to you. Thanks, Jeff. It's the Smart City Podcast. Whoa. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart City Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes can be found at thesmartcitypodcast.com. If you have any questions or comments for me or any of my guests, connect with me via email, zoe at thesmartcitypodcast.com or via the socials. I'm on Twitter and Facebook at smartcitypod. As always, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. City Podcast is what you're looking for.